At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. So uh, this year, there was a song. I've talked about this in the series before. I told my family I'm going to see how many Encanto references I can make in one sermon series. But there was a song that took our culture by storm. And I'm going to say the song just so it can be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Ready? We don't talk about Bruno. How many of you heard this song? Hands up. Come on, be honest with me. Yeah, most of us. Okay, I know. Parents reluctantly are like, thank you, Jacob. I hate you. It's like, you've already ruined this for me. We Don't Talk About Bruno is actually a really fascinating song to me. It's a hugely popular song. It's catchy. It's upbeat. It's kind of the key theme song of the movie. It's actually Disney's first number one hit since A Whole New World, which seems like forever ago, right? But what's really interesting to me about the song is not its style, although it's brilliant. It's actually its theme. It's got a really interesting theme for a number one song from a kid's movie. The song essentially explores the magical family's relationship with their estranged brother, Bruno, and the fact that they don't talk about him anymore. And if you listen to the song, it's really odd because essentially the song is about family dysfunction and the fact that we don't talk about family dysfunction. Like, we, we keep that under wraps. We don't talk about Bruno. And yet... This song has struck a huge chord in our country. Not just for its catchy music, I think, but because I think actually most people can relate to the theme of the song. Every family experiences some level of dysfunction. Some of our families experience really high levels of dysfunction, some of us less so. But if you have a family, you know there is some part of that family that's dysfunctional. Some aspect, some piece of it. And the reality is that often the things that are most dysfunctional in our families are the things that are least discussed. It might not be Bruno, but we all have a Bruno in our family. Maybe we don't talk about Bruno, maybe we don't talk about dad's drinking. Maybe we don't talk about our family's history of racism. Maybe we don't talk about that incident that happened back then because we don't bring up the past. Or maybe we don't talk about family business outside the family. But all of us have aspects in our families that are often dysfunctional, and we don't talk about those things. The reality is we relate to the song because most of us have a Bruno in our lives that's often ignored, overlooked, hidden, and left unaddressed. And because of that, many people in our world, including probably all of us, are left on our own to figure out how we navigate the challenges of the dysfunction that exists in our families. Most people struggle at some point to figure out, how do I live in light of this reality? We might stuff it deep, we might ignore it, but then it bubbles up again. And then we start to ask the questions, what does God have to say about this? Like, what is God's role in the dysfunction that I experience in my own family? Maybe my family of Georgian, maybe my 
family that I'm currently in. And what does God have to actually say in his word about the reality of family dysfunction? That's the question. We all have family dysfunction. It's often undiscussed. But how can God actually help us in the midst of the dysfunction we experience? Thankfully, when it comes to family dysfunction in the book of Genesis, we don't talk about Bruno isn't the standard practice. In fact, it's the opposite. We've been in this series, Family, Why Bother? We've been looking at the first book of the Bible and some of the first families to kind of explore what does God have to say about family, its purpose, the way he designed it, and also how we navigate the challenges of family that we experience. And today, we're going to look at one of the most dysfunctional families in the book of Genesis. In fact, in the story that we're going to explore today, we have a family that never interacts together as an entire family. They're completely separated, broken. They don't communicate. You're going to see in this story, there's a lot of things happening underneath the surface. And yet, the author of Genesis puts this story front and center right in the middle of the book. He doesn't gloss over the dysfunction. He doesn't leave it, or leave it ignored or unintended or undiscussed. Instead, he brings it front and center. And the thing that he wants to show through that, that we're going to unpack through this story today, is that God's grace can actually prevail over family dysfunction. So let's jump into a story about a dysfunctional family, and I want you to kind of see why that's true. So our story today centers on Isaac and Rebekah. We were introduced to them last week. If you were here, Isaac is the son of Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham and essentially said, I'm going to send you to a land. I'm going to give you, I'm going to create from you a people. And through you, I'm going to bless you in a way that the entire world will ultimately be blessed. And then we've explored Abraham a little bit. And then last week, we saw that Abraham had a son, Isaac, the one through whom those promises would continue to. God worked providentially in Isaac's life to bring his wife, Rebecca, into the picture. And last week, we kind of explored the beginning of their relationship. Well, today, we're going to kind of fast forward in their relationship because what started off really well didn't quite continue that way. Isaac and Rebecca continue on. They have two sons that you're going to be introduced to in our story, Jacob and Esau. And you're going to see right from the get-go of this story, there's some problems in the family. If you're with me in Genesis chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 34 where this story kind of begins. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So the way our story begins is one of their sons of Isaac and Rebekah chooses essentially to marry wives that are outside of his ancestral tribe, which would be a big deal in his day in the ancient Near East several thousand years ago. And because of this, this causes great distress for his parents. There's suddenly these, all these family issues. And that's where the story begins, in a family in tension. And it naturally brings the question, well, where's this tension kind of come from? Well, actually, we see right away where the tension comes from in chapter 27. Look at verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older brother and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. 
I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. It's common practice in Isaac's day for when a father's reaching the end of his life to pass on his blessing, his fatherly blessing, and the resources of him to his son. And so what seems kind of natural in this, though, is actually the core root of this family's dysfunction. You see, when these two sons were born, God had actually made a promise over Jacob and Esau. You actually have to go back to Genesis 25 to see it, but it's important for you to note it because it's really the highlight of what happens at the beginning of our story. So if you're in a Bible, flip a page over to Genesis 25, and you'll see it start in verse 21. Here's the birth of Jacob and Esau. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and this is what the Lord said to her. Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So from the moment these twins are born, God makes a promise to Isaac and essentially says, listen, these two people are going to become nations out of you, and the younger one is actually the one who will carry forth the blessing. The older will serve the younger. So the younger one is actually the one who's going to carry on the legacy and promises that were made to Abraham and then to Isaac. Now go back to then Genesis 27. Our story begins with Isaac at the end of his life, in the midst of family distress, choosing now to give that blessing to Esau. For whatever reason, Isaac had determined in his own age to turn from God's promises and God's word and to go in direct contradiction of what God had told Isaac to do when it came to his sons. And in reality, the story kind of from the get-go gives us the root cause of what's ultimately the issue for this family's dysfunction, which is their disobedience. Disobedience is what leads to family dysfunction. And we see this kind of continue throughout the story. We can't read every verse, so I'm going to kind of give you the highlights to kind of see how this plays out. So Isaac determines to bless Esau, the older son, in contradiction to God's word. His wife, Rebecca, hears this, and she decides to hatch a plan to actually say, no, Jacob's the one to receive the blessing. But instead of confronting Isaac, she decides to respond with a plan of deception. So she calls Jacob to herself and she says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want you to kill two goats. I want you to bring them to me. I'm going to make a delicious stew that's very similar to your brother's. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take the goat hair that from those goats that you killed and I want you to put it on your arms because your brother's a lot hairier than you. And so I want you to kind of mask yourself like you have a little bit more hair. And then I want you to go get your brother's clothes because here's the deal. Your dad's actually blind. So if we bring the stew, we have goat skin on, and you wear his clothes, maybe he'll think you're Esau, and then he'll ultimately bless you. So she hatches this whole deceptive plan, essentially to try to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob. And Jacob goes right along with the plan. He kills the goats, they make the stew, he dresses up in the goat skin, put, I don't know how that happens either, but it's like, but anyway, puts on his brother's clothes, goes in. His dad is kind of confused at first, and kind of says like, hey, what's going on? Is this really my son? And Jacob full on says, oh yeah, I'm Esau. That's me. And Isaac, so blinded still by his disobedience, says, okay, and pronounces blessing over Jacob, thinking that it's Esau. 
And so what we see in this story is what starts in disobedience hatches a plan of deception in which actually the two key characters try to sneak and hide and accomplish what they want to accomplish underneath the nose of the patriarch Isaac. Now this leads to all sorts of family issues, right? Esau returns in the story, comes in and says, hey, I've got the stew, I'm ready for the blessing. And Isaac basically says, oh, shoot. Uh, apparently I already did that for your brother. And Esau's like, wait, well, you can still bless me, but that's not how it works. And so Isaac basically says, no, I can't bless you. I've already passed on the blessing and the birthright to your, to your brother. And so he gives Esau a anti-blessing. And essentially, he does not get what he thought he was going to get. And he is despondent about this. In fact, the text says at one point that he was an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He has an agony about it. And in fact, he's so angry that he gets mad at his brother and decides, that's it, I'm going to kill him. And suddenly, this family continues to fracture into even greater issues. Now, Rebecca, the mom, finds out that Esau has this plan to kill Jacob, and so she comes to Jacob and, or to Isaac and says, hey, we got to send this kid away. So let's send him back to my family and we'll see if maybe he can go back and live with my uncle and then he'll be safe. And Jacob essentially leaves with, I, with Isaac's and Rebecca's blessing to go back and essentially this family completely is broken from there. Rebecca and Isaac never see Jacob again. They end up passing away before, they're, before that happens. And so the whole story moves from bad decision to bad decision to bad decision to distress and brokenness and fracturing. You can't read Genesis 27 without going like, this is one big mess of a family. Like there is some hyper dysfunction here. Like we can't communicate, we can't talk, we got secrets, we got disobedience, we got all sorts of issues that bubble up from the surface. And all of it comes back to the reality that they disobey God's word. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke comments on this section of scripture that the family is not working together, but conspiring against one another. Why? Because the patriarch Isaac offers no spiritual leadership. The root cause throughout the story is his disobedience and the way that plays out in the deception and disobedience of the rest of his family. And it's an important point then for us to be reminded that disobedience leads to family dysfunction. We all have dysfunction in our families and our lives. And if we look at why that's the case, why we experience that reality in the lives and the families that we have, if you trace it back far enough, every dysfunction finds its root in the same place, our disobedience to God's word. God's word was given to his people from the very beginning as a way to flourish and to experience the good life to experience harmony and goodness in relationships. Yet, when we believe the lie that we know better than God's word, that our ways are better than his ways, that always ends up leading to dysfunction. Isaac makes the choice here and essentially says, oh, well, I know what God said, but I think I know better. So I'm going to bless the son I want to bless. I'm going to make the choice I want to make. And in some ways, it's a repeat of the same temptation we've seen throughout the book. Adam and Eve. Oh, God said, don't eat, I know better. Cain and Abel, Abraham. Every time God's people turn from his word, it causes distress and dysfunction in their lives. And it's the same thing for you and I. 
Every dysfunction, every pain point that you experience in your life and your family at some point comes to the place where you or someone maybe before you has turned from God's word. It's the root of all of the dysfunction we experience. I was reminded of this um, this past year. I uh, took a class last fall on um, emotionally healthy relationships, trying to get better and just engaging relationships and emotional health. And um, part of that class was we had to do a family, uh, what's called a family genogram which is like this diagram where you essentially like draw out your family tree in the last like two or three generations. And then you spend time analyzing kind of the life of the people in your family tree, their relationships, how they related to each other. So your parents, your grandparents, you're kind of looking. And the whole point is for you to try to identify patterns within your family story that impact you today. And it was fascinating to go back and look and see like, oh, I, I see these kind of patterns within my family. But as I reflected on it, one of the things that I realized in that was that one of the thing, that much of the dysfunction, every family has dysfunction, my family has dysfunction, that every dysfunction that I experience in my family, I could trace back to patterns of when people had turned from God's word. So when both my grandfathers made the choice to not be faithful in their relationships, that had an impact on my family. When there were decisions that were made in relationship to people, like I could see, and I won't go into all the details, but you could like literally see. And then what I recognized was my own disobedience was rooted in patterns of disobedience that came before me. And I couldn't just look at that and say like, well, that's their fault, right? It's like, that's the natural tendency. Like I want to pass the buck up the chain and be like, well, if my parents had it together, if their parents had it together, then maybe I wouldn't be such a mess. But at the end of the day, we all make choices in response to the dysfunctions of our family. You can't just look at the past and blame them, but what you do have to recognize is that the dysfunction that you experience is rooted in the disobedient choices that you've made, that your parents have made, that your grandparents have made. And just like Rebecca and Jacob make choices in response to Isaac's sin, we all oftentimes make choices out of the dysfunction of our family. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to the same root problem. We turn from God's word and God's ways. And that's what leads to dysfunction in this family, and it's what leads to dysfunction in our family. And the question, though, that we want to ask is, well, that's good. What hope is there then? Like, great, we're all just a mess now? Well, no, but thankfully in the story, even as the author brings dysfunction front and center, he reminds us that we all have hope within the dysfunction that we experience in our family. And you kind of see it at the end of this first part of the story. Look at Genesis chapter 28. So Isaac and Rebekah make the decision to send Jacob away, to go back to her family um, for a time. But as they do, Isaac recognizes in some ways that he's made a mistake, and he comes to bring another blessing to, to over Jacob before he leaves. And you find that blessing in, uh, starting in verse 2. So this is what he says, Arise, go to Pana Aram, the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now here come, here's what he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away. Now, 
This blessing that he gives has some really important language that I hope you picked up on. And if you didn't, that's okay. I'll explain it to you. All right? So the first thing that he says is, may the Lord bless you and may you be fruitful and multiply. Now, where do we hear that language before? Genesis chapter 1. Remember, God created Adam and Eve and the command that he gave to them was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So what Isaac is now saying to Jacob is God's command and creation and purposes for humanity, those same things are for you to follow as well, to receive this blessing so you can be fruitful and multiply and carry forth God's purpose in humanity. And then he goes on to say, may you become a company of peoples and take possession of the land. Where do we hear those themes? Land, people, blessing, God's promise to Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you with people and land, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And so what Isaac is doing is reminding Jacob in his blessing, you now are the one to carry forth God's promises for the sake of his purposes in the world. And so God's promise originally that God's promises would come through the younger, as our story closes in this scene, is being fulfilled in Isaac's blessing over Jacob. And what's amazing is that it's happening in the midst of all of this hyper dysfunction of this family. God's word is still true. His purposes are still accomplished. They can't stop what God wants to accomplish, ultimately, even in all of their hyper dysfunction. Genesis 28, 3 through 5, is an act, an utter act of God's grace over a significantly dysfunctional family. This family, including Jacob himself, does nothing in this story to deserve the covenantal blessings and promise that were given to Abraham. If anything, they sought to mess it up through their disobedience and their deception and the distress that they caused themselves. And yet, God still remains faithful to bring about what he has promised. And the author could have just given us a story that says, great, Isaac blessed Jacob, Jacob went on, God's promises continue. But he spends all of 27 highlighting their dysfunction and then shows you that God's promises continue. Why? Why does he bring the dysfunction front and center? Here's why. Because God's grace shines best through family dysfunction. God's grace is best seen through the brokenness, not in spite of the brokenness. One commentator says on this passage, by setting this new step forward in the history of salvation in the context of such unprincipled behavior by every member of the family, each self-centeredly seeking his or her own interest, the narrator is not simply pointing out the fallibility of God's chosen whose virtues often turn into vices, but he's reasserting the grace of God. It is his mercy that is the ultimate ground of salvation. You see, the reality is that it's often through our dysfunction that grace shines the brightest. And the author brings the dysfunction of this family front and center to say, look how great God is. Look how faithful he is. Look how his grace carries forward even through all the mess and that he can be trusted even with our messes. You see, I think oftentimes when it comes to the dysfunction of our lives and our family, we want to mitigate that. We want to hide that. We want to kind of, we think God is best put on display when we look good. So we present our best selves to the world to say, look at me and you'll see how great God is. 
but it's actually often the opposite. It's often when we're willing to be most vulnerable and honest with our messes that God's grace is most visibly seen to the world around us because they know they don't have their act together and they're looking for some help to help them with the parts that they don't have their act together. And when we're willing to say, I don't have it together, but I've got a God who still works in spite of that, God's put on display. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey recounts growing up in a church that tended, in his words, towards perfectionism. This is how he described it. He said, on Sundays, well-scrubbed families emerged from their cars with smiles on their faces, even though, as we later found out, they had been fighting abusively all week long. Anybody else had that experience? Like, kids, be quiet. We're at church. Get it together. And you and your wife just had a fight in the car, and now you got to come up and preach a sermon? Gosh. I didn't have a fight with Alicia today. But, but we all feel that. And too often, church becomes this pressure of, like, I've got to come in and have my act together. When I come around Christian community and Christian people, like, I don't, I'm not going to show you the mess that I'm struggling with. I'm going to show you my faith. I'm going to show you how awesome everything is, that I've got it together. And friends, I mean, that's only amplified in the culture we live in, right? My grass grows a half inch too high, and I'm like nervous about how my neighbors are going to judge me, which is ridiculous, but that's the suburban culture, right? It's this feeling of present, present, present. And we think somehow through presentation, that's how people will see God's grace. But Yancey gives us an important note because he actually learned that that's not how it happens. So he explores in the book the reality of God's grace, And then this is what he says. He says, as a child, I put on my best behavior on Sunday mornings, dressing up for God and the Christians around me. It never occurred to me that church was a place to be honest. Now, though, as I seek to look at the world through the lens of grace, I realize that imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. Light only gets in through the cracks. You see, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Unearned, undeserved, getting something you don't deserve. So if you, if you had it together, if you deserved grace, you wouldn't get grace. It's actually because you don't have it together that God shows you grace. Your imperfection is the means by which he's chosen to display the beauty of his grace. And I love that line. It's through the cracks Do you struggle with the cracks in your life and in your family? Are you like, do you try to patchwork the cracks? Like, if I can just cover them up, right? Just just enough. Last year, in all the rain, I had a crack in my basement that water started shooting through. And luckily, we were able to fix it. But what I realized is when they went to finish the basement, the crack was there. And what they did was they just took dry lock and they painted over the crack. And that lasted for a good number of years until the pressure was just right and that didn't last anymore and now it's my problem to deal with. Welcome to owning a home, right? But oftentimes that's what we do in our lives. We're like, let let me patch this over. I'll patch this over with a good job. I'll patch this over by putting all my emphasis on my kids. I'll patch this over with maybe getting lost in drugs or alcohol or something that can get me to escape the struggle and pain of my life. Right? So we, we know our imperfections, but then we try to find all these patchwork things to cover it up, or we try to hide it, or stuff it, or ignore it, because we think, well, that's what it means to follow Jesus. 
And yet, what we see in this story is actually no. What shows God off the most is when we're just real and honest. We often suppress discretion around the areas of our lives that we feel most uncomfortable, most ugly, and most dysfunctional about. We don't talk about Bruno. Yet, that's where God's grace wants to meet us. God's grace meets this family in the midst of their dysfunction. You see, the truth of the story is God doesn't work despite our family dysfunction. He actually works through it because that's what puts him on display the best. And so if we're going to begin to find healing for our own family dysfunctions, the place we have to start is just being honest and real. Maybe it's time we have to talk about Bruno. Maybe it's time where we have to get uncomfortable with ourselves first and with some of the relational brokenness that we experience in our lives. I'm I'm not saying you got to like run out of here and have the hardest conversation you ever had in your life with someone, but, but maybe there's things in your life that have been dysfunctional that you just need to take a step of honesty towards. Maybe it's finding a trusted friend and saying like, this happened in my life or this is in my family and this is really hard. I've never talked about it with someone. And oftentimes that can be where God can meet us and begin a journey of experiencing healing. God's grace shows up in the cracks of our lives. That's where he wants to meet us. And not only does God's grace shine amidst our family dysfunction, it actually then becomes the context where we can find healing and reconciliation in the middle of our family dysfunction. So we leave in the story of Genesis, we kind of leave this broken relationship between Jacob and Esau for several chapters. Jacob actually takes off, goes back to live with his uncle, and he lives for 15 years with his uncle, separated from his brother. But the time comes in the story for him to actually return home. And we actually encounter that reality in Genesis 33. You can turn over there with me. And as he's coming home, Jacob recognizes the dysfunction of his family and the pain that he's caused as his brother. And it makes him really nervous. He doesn't know what he's walking into. Because when you seek to engage family dysfunction, you don't always know what you're walking into and what someone else's response will be. And he's afraid. And so in the first few verses of chapter 33, he essentially sets up his family in a way where he seeks, because he thinks his brother's going to come after him. He's not sure. So he sets his family up as they come to his brother, where he puts his favorite kids and favorite wife in the back and his least favorite in the front. Now, that's jacked up. We all recognize, like, all right, Jacob, like, come on. Like, that's, right? And that he goes in front of them, bowing down seven times before he gets to his brother. And all of it's meant to highlight, like, there's some serious issues in this relationship and problem. Like, if that's how you got to show up to see your brother... Like, I I don't know. Last time I saw my brother, I didn't bow seven times. So I'm just saying, like, there's something there. But as he does this, Esau responds in a pretty dramatic way. Look at verse 4. So he himself, I'll start in three. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But look at Esau's reaction. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So Esau, instead of responding with hostility, responds with this incredible expression of humility and harmony. He embraces his brother. He welcomes in. There's this moment of, like, them reuniting. 
So where before he's afraid of fear, Esau responds with this embrace. And in the moment, you're kind of left with like a, what happened? Like, why is this the response? But the author kind of leaves you there, and then he kind of continues on in the story. Verse 5, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near, bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus, he urged him and Esau took it. So there's this moment of reuniting. And Jacob recognizes the wrong that's happened in the past. And so he essentially comes to his brother and he offers him a gift, a kind of work of reparation to acknowledge the sin that's happened and to begin the process of restoration. And Esau's natural reaction is to be reluctant. Like, nah, I can't take that. I've got enough. It's fine. But eventually he gives in. And that's actually a beautiful moment. It's a symbol of their full restoration, that the gift has been offered for the sin of the past. It's been accepted. And the brothers are restored in this moment. Now, Jacob continues on in a different way, but we'll leave that story for another day. But in this moment, we see this beautiful restoration of a relationship that was broken before. And the thing that we ask the question of is like, again, what would lead the brothers to reconcile? It's not time. Time doesn't heal anything. If somebody's harmed you to that degree, you just leave enough time. That's not just a natural like fixer of things. You know that. So what actually happened in their lives that would lead them to be able to move towards reconciliation? One scholar puts it this way, there's a significant emphasis on the idea of grace in this section. And when you actually look back through, you recognize what they both continue to acknowledge is God's grace in their life. The reality is God brought grace by blessing both brothers. Esau had enough and Jacob. Jacob recognizes that out of the grace that God had extended to him, as the one whom God had chosen, he now graciously offers back to his brother. Even his statement about seeing Esau is like seeing the face of God as a reminder of God's encounter with Jacob and his grace in that moment. And so the overarching message through this moment of reconciliation is that God's grace had worked in their lives in such a way to make it possible. You see, the reality is God's grace not only shines through family dysfunction, it has the ability to reconcile family dysfunction. It can work in our lives in such a way where broken things can be restored and reconciliation can happen. This is the power of God's gracious work that he provides what's necessary for us to be reunited and reconciled with him and with others. I mean, we've said it all along. We all experience family dysfunction. And all of that is because we have been disobedient to God's word. We experience the distress in our lives and our families because we've turned from his word and his word and his ways. Yet, the good news of the gospel is that in our sinful turning from God, God does not turn from us, but out of his grace seeks and pursues us so much so that he would send his son to die for us so our sins could be forgiven 
so that he could cover our dysfunction. And then Jesus rises from the dead so we would have the spirit to not only be reconciled to God, but pursue reconciliation with one another. The gospel is a gospel of grace. And grace reconciles with God and with people. And it is out of this abundant grace that God gives us the blessings necessary in our life to experience this. This is why Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing. You see, the reality is, despite his disobedience and deception, Jacob still received God's blessing. And the truth of the gospel is, if you're in Jesus, despite your disobedience and deception, you still get God's blessing. Not because of your perfection, because of his love and grace over you. And because of that, he provides what's necessary to begin to experience reconciliation in the broken, dysfunctional parts of our lives. You see, if, if we're to experience reconciliation, it takes the work of another to help make that possible. I was reminded of this through a story I heard re- or read recently. I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story, so I got to share it, right? The story goes there were two brothers who lived on adjacent farms. And for many years, they lived in harmony and unity with one another, sharing resources, helping each other out, flourishing in their business, until one day they got in a bad fight between the two of them. And the argument kind of blew up and and got to the point where they walked away from each other, continued to fester with bitterness and anger. There was no reconciliation for a lot of time, and they just both began to harbor a bitterness towards each other over it. And because of that, they started to, instead of sharing and flourishing together, they started to seek to operate their farms on their own, separate from one another. Over time, things didn't get better. They actually got worse. One brother got so frustrated with the reality that he decided to take a bulldozer and just drive and build a moat in between their two properties just further dividing their land from from one another. The other brother, in response, so frustrated, decided, you know what? I can't even take this anymore. I don't even want a reminder that my brother lives over there. So he went out, called the local carpenter, and said, hey, would you come over? I'd like for you to build me a fence along this property line so I don't even have to look over and see my brother or his property anymore. Carpenter said, okay, and the brother went off to do his work. The story goes that the carpenter went out recognized the deep division that existed in the family and so decided that instead of building a fence that day, he was going to build a bridge. And so he spent the day building a bridge across the moat and then left. And the story goes that the other brother looked out of his window that day and saw the bridge across the moat and his mind thought, oh, my brother's made an offering of peace. And he walked out of his house and walked across the bridge. The other brother returning back from his work on the farm that day saw his brother standing there on his property and went down and began a conversation that ultimately led to their reconciliation. Now again, I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. And what it reminds me of is that often it's the act of another that can bring the reconciliation we need in our lives. You see, we're a mess and we're gonna continue to be a mess. But the good news of the gospel is it was an act of another that build a bridge so you could be reconciled with God and so that you could find reconciliation in the dysfunctions of our family. 
that at the end of the day, what's necessary for you to experience the healing that you desire in your relationships has already been done on a cross where your sin was paid for and your dysfunction was covered over. And we root our trust and our faith there when we're reminded that God was gracious to us in our sin, it leads us to be able to take steps of reconciling with those around us. So what bridge does God want to build in your life today? Maybe for some of you, it's the bridge back to him because you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. And you're walking still in that sin and that guilt and that shame. The good news of the gospel is Jesus did what's necessary so you could be reconciled to God. But then out of that, God wants to lead you to build bridges in your life to be able to reconcile the relationships that you might experience dysfunction in. And again, I'm not saying that's an easy road. I'm not saying that's we snap our fingers, we walk out of here, everything's better. But what I'm saying is when we set our hope in Jesus, when we go back and remind ourselves that God's grace prevails over family dysfunction, it allows us to begin to take steps. Maybe it's just a step of honesty and acknowledging that it's there. Maybe it's a step of humility that comes to a brother or a sister and says, I wronged you, I'm sorry. Maybe it's a step, I don't know what it is in your life, but what I know is what God's done in his grace is create the opportunity so that healing can be experienced. And my encouragement to you today is no matter what dysfunction you might be facing, set your hope in Jesus. If you do that, God will lead you to the path and help you in the work of bringing reconciliation in your life and your relationships. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.